grace to you. Well, greetings from the, the vista of January 2nd, 2011, right? right? I mean, just, there's something just unique about the beginning of the year, right? Not, you know, I do know why that is, but last night I just found myself went out to pray and just, you know, focusing in on the beginning of the year and finding myself praying for the church, the beginning of the year, for my own walk, for my family, beginning of the year. And then all of a sudden I kind of caught myself and I'm thinking, wait, uh, tomorrow, you know, Lord, there's a calendar out there and this is the beginning of the year. But for you, isn't tomorrow just the next day, right? This is just the next day. You know, for me, I tried to put a pencil to, you know, okay, well, this is day 17,100 and something for me. I don't know where you are in counting. Maybe you haven't been doing that, but uh, 17,100 and something is today for me. And, you know, this week, you know, kicking into this week, somewhere around 2,400 plus weeks. You know, so I don't start every week going, I'm at the vista of the 2,400th week of my life. Join me. And, but there is something unique about the new year. Right? This is only new year number 46, and I didn't pay attention to the first 10. Probably. So this is, this is like... New year number 36 or so that I'm actually anticipating, here comes the year. And, and there's a unique opportunity here to regroup in our lives. And a lot of people use the new year that way. And I want to encourage us to use the new year that way. Uh, life is busy and it's a lot of challenge for us to live our lives. Um, I think I titled the, the introduction to the message, Managing the Whirlwind. Right, how many guys can identify with that? You look at your life, and it feels like a whirlwind. There's so much activity, so many people, so much contacts, so much responsibilities, so much activity and entertainment and things that we're interested in, and so many new toys and gadgets to be aware of. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff that goes into managing our lives. And, you know, if we're not careful... It just becomes this daily walk of chaos. We're just living in chaos. All right, look at a couple of thoughts that I think I put in your outline there. John Maxwell, he's a good thinker, planner, kind of a leadership-oriented writer. Try to get a little bit of insight from him on occasion, especially beginning of the year as you're trying to replan your life. A couple of quotes he had in a book on leadership. He says, William James said that the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. The petty and the mundane steal much of our time. Too many are living for the wrong things. Now, wrong things I want to use in this sense today. Not wrong things like morally wrong things, but wrong things when you put them up against some other things. Right? By comparison, they're, they're not exactly the things that should be at the top of the list. Uh, Robert McCain said, the reason most major goals are not achieved is that we spend our time doing second things first. And I think about that a little bit in our lives. And what I want to bring us up against this morning is, is the reality that you and I, the way in which we live our lives, the facts of life of suburban American modern living, you and I cannot afford to just let life come to us and just sort of pick it up as it comes. We have to develop this ability to be intentional about life. 
And a lot of us don't do that. I, I didn't do that for many, many portions of my life. And then I'll get into living life, and I'll just stop doing it along the way throughout the year. So this is a good thing for me to stop and regroup. But I can remember a severe contrast. If you've never traveled outside of this country, you really don't have a good frame of reference for a lot of stuff about life. You think that this is normal. You know, we are not normal here. We're the oddballs in the universe. I can remember being so struck a number of years ago. Some of you guys will remember. For a number of years, we were involved in helping churches to get established and planted in, in, in very remote locations in Mexico, central Mexico. First trip we did was not, it was in, almost in a suburb. It was a, you know, not like an American suburb of a pretty large city. But then after that, we moved out much, much farther out into much more remote areas. And many of you traveled with us and, and we would go into these villages. Um, a few of them that stick out in my mind, I remember visiting a village called El Colonel. And then right after that, a village called uh, Padilla. It was New Padilla, actually. And then there was another village way up in the mountains called Mikihuana. And these villages, I mean, they were remote. I remember the first time walking through Padilla, encountering a person walking through that village. And we would have translators with us, and we would just be trying to introduce them to the gospel. And eventually we were going to be building a church there, so we would welcome them as, as part of the outreach there. And meeting a man on planet Earth that when I asked him about Jesus Christ, he had never heard of him. It took me back. I couldn't believe it. I, I, I think I looked at him. You've never heard of Jesus Christ? And he was about a 25, 28-year-old man and never heard. So these were fairly remote places. But what struck me as an American was the pace of life and how they lived. Everything moved in slow motion. They got up in the morning and it was like, I mean, it really, it felt to me like the boredom would kill me. I just walked through the villages thinking, I don't know if I could live here. There's just not enough to do. You know, they just, they're just sitting around. They're, they're very hospitable because they have nowhere to be and nowhere to go. So they just invite you in. You sit in their huts and you try and have conversation with them. And in the afternoon, all the ladies go out and they've got these sticks that they've made into brooms and they sweep their dirt yards. I'm not quite sure what the deal is with that, but they're sweeping their yards in the afternoon. And, you know, the men, for the most part, a lot of them are gone. They're out working during the day. But it's just slow. You know, there's no phones. There's no TVs. There's no electricity. There's no means of travel. There's no cars parked in any driveways. There is no means of getting anywhere except on foot. So they just don't go a lot of places. And you look at that way of life and you think, how do you live that way? But then I look back at our way of life. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not in Mikihuana. <laughs> we are in America. And our lives are so enormously busy. We don't almost have a reference point to realize how much we have to manage on a daily basis. It is a challenge, and we have to be intentional. Otherwise, we become paralyzed. Too much can paralyze you. you know, there's a saying, I don't know how accurate this is, I've never tried to tame lions, but the reason why a lion tamer carries a stool into the lion, you know, he's got a whip with him too, but he's got a stool. Because the stool messes up the, uh, the lion in a unique way because there's four legs on a stool. And when you thrust the four legs into the lion's face, for a moment there, he can't figure out which one of them to look at. 
So he tries to look at all of them, and it just paralyzes him for a second. I thought, yeah, that's us. It's like, you know, American lifestyle just sort of thrusts all these possibilities, and, and we spend a big chunk of our day every day just kind of look, looking at too many options and doing nothing and getting very little accomplished. Well, we need to pay attention. There's opportunities for us coming in this year that we want to learn how to interact with our lives a little differently. I put a question in your outline there. When was the last time you considered what were the first things in your life and what were the second things? What was of primary importance in your life? You assessed your life. You looked at relationships and time spent and money and activity and energy. And then you, you could delineate things that were of primary importance for your life and things that were of secondary importance in your life. Well, it's helpful for us to learn to create some boundaries. And our, and our primary things help us do that. They, they create some things that we can say, that's, that's not important. It's not that those things are always wrong. It's just that they're not necessary and they're not of great importance to us. And so we maybe can push them to the edges while we get focused on some more important things. I didn't put this thought in your outline, but I thought it was an interesting insight from a man named Viktor Frankl in a book named Man's Search for Meaning. I'm not sure this guy's a believer, but he had an interesting insight. He said, freedom is only part of the story and half the truth. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplanted by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. <laughs> See, there's, there's a benefit to creating some, some boundaries in our lives, a place to which you and I say, this is how big my life is going to be and no bigger. I'm not going to let it be any bigger than that. So I know that, that almost sounds, you know, when I ask you, when was the last time you said that? When was the last time you said, no more no more. That's enough. I'm not going anymore. I'm not spending any more time there. I'm not spending any more money on that. I'm not trying to get another one of those things. I've got enough relationships to service in my life. This, this is it. This is the size of my life right now. And, and no more. So there is this appetite in us. It's an American way of life. More. 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 A guy named Jim Collins wrote a, a book called Good to Great. It was a study of how companies uh, incorporated uh, entities have gone from just decent companies into the echelon of uniquely great companies. And he brought this insight in the book. He says, do you have a to-do list? Do you also have a stop-doing list? Most of us lead busy but undisciplined lives. We have ever-expanding to-do lists, trying to build momentum by doing, 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 and doing more. And it rarely works. Right now, some of us don't even recognize we're doing that, so we're just loading up and loading up and loading up and loading up, and we have no idea why our life is so cumbersome, and it's, it's hard to move and control and get something meaningful going out of it. Right? Write this in the margins of your notes here. Note to self. Create a stop-doing list. There's some stuff in your life that by God's wisdom, he wanted you to do for a while and then stop doing. It wasn't perpetual. It wasn't supposed to keep on going forever. What are those things? And have you ever stopped to look at your life and say, you know, I just need to stop doing that and that and that and that? Listen, and don't just look at those things that you're like, if anybody knew I was doing that, oh, man. Dark, hidden, sinful things. Listen, those don't need review. They just need repentance. 
But the stuff that's decent in your life, it's not morally wrong. It's okay stuff. There's a bunch of stuff like that that just needs to stop being done. The season's gone. Or you've come into a new place and God wants to do some other things in your life. So today to manage your life in 2011, three steps I'm going to try and cover. One, have an effective purpose statement for your life. There's got to be something at the middle of who you are that defines who you are. If you don't have that, you can't even start this process correctly. Secondly, plan to succeed. And third, plan to fail. All right, let's see if we can get through these in our time this morning. Purpose statement. Here, write this down. Purpose provides two things for us. It provides direction and it provides boundaries. Direction and boundaries. When I have a purpose that's strong and effective and clear in my life, it's going to point me in some direction. I'm going after that. That's what I'm about. Well, the moment I create momentum toward that, I also create boundaries because I'm no longer just wandering through life. And whatever comes up, I'm available for. I've got boundaries now because that's what I'm about. Well, Keith, how about some of this? Well, you know, that's really not what I'm about. I'm about that. So I've already, I've created boundaries for my life by having purpose, right? Let's look in scripture. Go to 1 Peter. I really want us just to, to learn how much there is to benefit from in 1 Peter. So we're, we're not actually teaching through a verse this morning, but we're going to hang out there to get some more insights from this rich book that we've begun our study of. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 have some great purpose statements for the Christian. So let, let's review some of these we've, we've looked at a little bit before. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, going through the first couple of verses there, we, we pick up these dynamics of those, this is who Peter's writing to, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. So here's the audience. The audience is being defined for us. The audience is also being described, and the characteristics of the audience are being made known here. So it's not just a letter that has my name on it. Peter, an apostle, to Keith. Okay, well, that's great. I appreciate the personalness of that. But, but that doesn't tell me anything about what characterizes me. But this passage does. So there's this identity statement in here. There's this purpose statement. To those who are something. This is who you are. This is a defining statement about who you are. You are elect exiles. Right? I know that's familiar terminology for us, but I want to keep it before us. It's so important. You are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Do right? you remember that little phrase that we tweaked out a few weeks ago? Wayne Grudem says, according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. That's who you are. You are elect. You have come into something that has been hidden from your sight but gaining momentum all these years. And it's come to this moment where God has reached in and grabbed a hold of your life and brought you into something. Something that God's been contemplating and planning for your life. Now, I love the affection because I think that's what it is that Jesus has for his apostles the night that he's eating the last meal with them. You remember what he says to them? 
how I have longed to eat this meal with you. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but that kind of blows me out of the water. The God of the universe who exists in eternity past has been looking to that moment, awaiting the day when he was going to do something so amazing and mind-blowing that he was going to restore these very ones that he was eating that meal with to himself. And a purpose for their existence was going to come thrusting back into their fallen world. And the God of the universe was anticipating that day. See, it's that kind of a concept of God and his affection toward you that's bound up in that word elect. That's who you are. You are the one who's been on God's mind that he has been anticipating the day when out of a fallen condition where you and I, all of us, were rebellious toward God, making our way through life, figuring out something else to devote ourselves to besides him, that he was going to come invading that moment and personally bring you and I into his presence and into his life from now on. This purpose has invaded us. But then he says, you're not only elect, but you're exiles as well. That's who you are. You are in this location temporarily. This is is like waiting in line. How many of y'all, when you're waiting in line for something, you know, you're not like, I don't know, in the McDonald's drive-up window trying to figure out, you know, we could put flowers right here and... uh, you know, I think if we just painted all this, you know, maybe, the, maybe paint the bumpers on the way to the drive-up window. You're not thinking, you're waiting in line. It's temporary. It's not a big deal, right? You're in exile here. Part of who I am is I'm just briefly in this place for a strategic purpose, but it's not for long. You and I cannot, cannot as exiles take our cues from You know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. How everybody else is living their life out in this world. I don't know how that data comes to you, but it comes to us. Normal life here on planet Earth being put on display by others around us, and we start looking at that and trying to figure out how normal we are, how much of that describes us, and the good life, and can we have more of that, and, you know... Maybe looking at Facebook in a way that's, that's just an unhealthy way to do Facebook. Right? Can you remember this? Facebook is a highlight reel of people's lives. What you don't normally find, well, maybe you do find this on Facebook, but what you don't typically find is mundane nothingness. Another, here's another status picture of me doing nothing. I do that most of the time. Every once in a while, I go somewhere bizarre and interesting. No, that's what we put online, right? We post these unique experiences. And what it starts looking like, you know, because, I mean, in a moment, you can access 30 people's highlight reel. Compare your day to their highlight reel. Aren't you just the most miserable, nothing-going-on individual on the planet? I mean, you're not dressed like them. You don't look like them. They're smiling. There's a party. There's all these people. Where are you? I'm at home doing dishes. Man, what a great life I'm leading. Well, but that's where they were two hours before that picture was taken, right? So you look at it kind of weird, and you assess your life. Listen, don't take lessons from the world, especially how they're living their life and spending their time, because they're not exiles. This is as good as it's ever going to get for them. When their time in the waiting room is over, it gets miserably terrible. 
they best be living it up. When our time here is over, the party hasn't yet begun. So we are. That's who we are. Yeah, you can get excited about that day. You're invited. You have an invitation. Elect exiles, right? So that's, that's who we are, according to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, so on a daily basis in your life, there's this purpose thing going on. The Holy Spirit's at work transforming you, changing you. He's got his hands all over you. He's shaving things off. He's breaking things off. He's molding things. He's putting things back. That's happening every day. That's a purpose statement in your life. Those words in that, in that passage that come after that, for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Those are purpose words. This is for that. That thing happened for this. Something took place for that. So obedience to Christ is a purpose statement for my life. I wake up in the morning and a purpose for my life is for all things to come into order under the lordship of Christ. That's the purpose for creation and I'm part of it. So everything ought to be in order relating to God. Well, that's what obedience really is. It's just me doing what's the right thing for me to do in relationship to who God is. So for obedience and for sprinkling with his blood so that God could demonstrate the character that he is of forgiving and merciful. You and I exist so that the blood of Christ could wash us and on display for the glory of God could be seen a God who is forgiving and merciful. Those are purpose statements for our lives. Right now here, built. this is a backdoor issue. Built into that, you exist for the sprinkling blood of Christ to forgive you of your sins. Guess what's going to need to be in place for that to be seen? Your sin and your failures. Matt mentioned earlier, we're, we're going to fail this year. And I'm going to talk a little bit towards the end here about having a plan to fail. But the blood of Christ was because God had a plan for you and I to fail. And Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there, there wasn't this issue of, oh my goodness, forgiveness. Uh, what is that? How is that going to happen? No, in the character of God was a heart for his son to take upon himself our sins. And so our failures are part of what God's doing to reveal himself into our lives. So it's not like you and I can say, you know what, this year, doggone it, I'm going to have a year like I've never had before, and, and I'm not going to screw up like I did last year. Um, well, I hope it's an improvement. I hope this helps. But you are going to screw up. And when you do, there's this scream that's going to reverberate across the universe on the mercy of God. Because God's going to stay in relationship with you, even though you've failed. God is going to be faithful, even though you've been faithless. All right, so part of your life is going to provide the script for the greatness of God to be seen. If you did everything perfect and everything great, then you will no longer encounter mercy or God's faithfulness against the backdrop of our sinfulness. So that's going to be part of the script this year. Right? So be ready for failing. All right, purpose statement, real quick, if I can get through a couple of thoughts here. Purpose provides for us focus and exclusion. I'm trying to figure out how to get my life to a manageable size. That's what we're trying to figure out how to do, right? Well, purpose provides focus and exclusion. Listen to the language that's here. First Peter chapter 1, just heard these statements about who we are. We move a little further in the first Peter. We get to verse 14. As obedient 
children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? We just said the purpose for your life is for obedience. You've, you've come into this purpose in your life, and you exist now for obedience to Christ. And then he goes back and revisits this. Well, here's a, here's a result of that. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Right? Hold on to that word, former ignorance. And then he comes back again in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Right? So you have feudal ways and you have former ignorance. That generates daily activity. Right? That's a mindset that creates for us a bunch of stuff that we do and live in our lives. You know, if you were just to quickly go through, say, Ephesians, and we won't do this, but I just want to pick up Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. That same language is there, but it gets the same sort of ramp up. You know, chapter 1 talks about us, God, uh, God choosing us and predestining us. So there's that same foreknowledge dynamic of God's plan for us. And then Paul begins to explain to the church the plan for his own life as a called apostle and the plan for the church in proclamation of the gospel. And then he turns to our lives. He says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've received. And then he says this, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. And you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Right? So here, thrust into our reality is these futile ways of life. You come into this world as a fallen human being, disconnected from the purpose that God created us for. And in that former manner of thinking, we create all kinds of passions to live our lives for. In the futility of our minds, there's no meaning because there's no God. So we create new meaning, new goals, new ambitions, and we orchestrate our lives around those things. That's the lifestyle that characterized us before we knew Christ. That's why Paul can say, but you did not learn Christ this way. The basis of your activities is no longer what it once was. That's all changed when you became a new person in Christ. All right, back in 1 Peter again. Chapter 2. Great purpose statement. If I were to hold on to something for me that, that has been a purpose-defining statement for my life, it would be 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, so you're trying to figure out, okay, I want to organize my life for, for 2011. I want to aim at certain things, and I'm going to have to say no to some things because my life is too big. What do I say no to? What do I say yes to? If this verse doesn't help define who you are, then you can't create a right list. Who are you? Well, I'm a person, if you're a Christian, I'm a person chosen by God for the purpose of showing forth the excellencies of him through the windows of my life. That's why I exist. Now listen, if that's the definition that we embrace, 
And it's a definition really in the Bible that that's why we were created. All things exist, the Bible says, for the glory of God. Right? My people, whom I have chosen, who I made for myself, will declare my praise. Why does God have a people? To show forth the excellencies of him. So there's something that God had in store for you that's greater than any dream you had growing up. You know, maybe you wanted to be a fireman when you were four and an athlete when you were nine and whatever. And you, you made those things of great importance. I want to have that. I want to be that. I want to do that in my life. Okay, all along, God had, he might want to use some of that, but God had a core issue for you. You existed so that his glory could be seen through you. And when I say that and I compare that to being a fireman or whatever it is that you, you know, this is like affectionate dreams. And this is kind of like, what is this, a booby prize? Wait, wait, so, so what you're telling me, all my life I wanted it to be this. And then God comes along and, and, give, and does what? Gives you something a whole lot better than this. And listen, this might, be, this might be part of your life in exile. Maybe you'd be a fireman. Maybe you'd be an athlete. But when you get to heaven, there's no fires. Depending on what band you listen to, I'm not sure there's a football field in heaven, but there might be. I don't know. <laughs> it's a big house. We can play football. At least that's what I hear. Um. <laughs> but you and I are going to be absorbed in the glory of God. It's going to be overwhelmingly fascinating to us. And God says, hey, right now, I want to invite you into that. I want to give you a purpose in your life. I want my glory, the way that I am, the characteristics of who I am, I want them to put, be put on display through your life. And I'm going to put you in all kinds of locations. I'm going to put you in a location as a child in a home. I'm going to put you in a location as a husband or wife. Put you in a location as a worker in a job. Put you in a, in a church. I'm going to put you in these locations, but the purpose remains the same in all of them, for the glory of God to come through your life and be seen. That's what God had in mind in making us his people was to restore the image of his glory through our lives. So then you come beyond that thought in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All right, so do you see in these verses, you and I have encountered a new purpose in our life that's about the glory of God. When we did that, a bunch of things became former things, the old way of doing things. They became futile things. They were the things that we did because we couldn't come up with a good reason to live life. And so we came up with the reason of, I want to be successful. I want to make a name for myself. I want to be able to retire early. Uh, I want to be able to have a lot of money. I want to have comforts. I want to own a home here. I want to travel. Right? We came up with these futile things. We came up with all the things people come up with when they're empty on the inside without God and they seek to have these things become their life. And so what do you do when you have those things? Well, you get up in the morning and you live a certain life in order for those things to be fruitful. But that's not what we live for anymore. You became a Christian, a new life and a new purpose entered our life. So when I get up in the morning now, this is what I'm about. Well, then how do I schedule my day? Not based on the way I used to schedule it, but based on what I have 
found in Christ as a new purpose for why I even exist. Right? Th- this is going to help me to sort out first things and second things in our lives. Okay? In your outline, I think I put this. Purpose means there are some things to be focused on and some things to be avoided. And the basis of each is not merely what is morally acceptable, but rather what is strategically beneficial. Right, now can you chew on that? Make sure you put that in your notes for review maybe this week. Question, are you living a moral life or a strategic life? Do you live your life morally or do you live your life strategically? Do you understand the difference? See, a moral life, there's lots of people in the world who live moral lives. They avoid this vice, that practice. They're not going to be going to jail. They don't, they don't cheat on things and uh, break the law. They're not running around committing adultery. They're not stealing from others. They're living moral lives. But are they living strategic lives? Strategy means that there's an agenda. Strategy means there's somewhere to go. See, a Christian is called to live a strategic life because he lives his life for the glory of God. So he doesn't just try to avoid, you know, the seven deadly sins and, and, and then call that, I've lived this great life for the glory of God. I've avoided those things. When I look in the Bible, Christians don't just avoid things. They do things. They have certain affections and desires. They worship certain stuff. They spend their energy and their passions on things. That's a tr- strategic life. Now, if I live it for the glory of God, I'm going to avoid the seven deadly sins, right? So I will live a moral life. But a moral life in and of itself isn't necessarily a strategic life that seeks to glorify God. And here's what happened. When you got saved and a new purpose came into your life, and here's where come get some real practical thoughts for us today. A new agenda came into your life. A new purpose came into your life. Some new things came into your life. Some personal things came into your life. Things like prayer. I don't know what your prayer life looked like before you were saved. Mine was just like an emergency switch. It was just when things were really bad, uh, when I had broken the law, when I was about to be caught. I mean, I could get religion seriously in that moment. But when that wasn't happening, I didn't have a prayer life. I felt no sense of need or desire to connect with God, share my life with him, fellowship with God, be around God, be influenced by him, meditate on who God is. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I didn't do that. Studying the Bible, no. Any interest in studying the Bible? I mean, need to study the Bible. That wasn't something that was a major factor for my life. Worshiping God. This is all personal. I'm not talking about what we do when we just come in here in this building. But personally, worshiping God, expressing the greatness of God to God through whatever means I have to express that to him to make known the excellencies of God through my affection toward him. That wasn't in my life. Therefore, before, I didn't need time and I didn't need a plan for it. Corporate things, the dynamic specifically of the church, right? for a Christian, that's a huge component biblically for a Christian. So there are places that's going to touch. There's the Great Commission. Before I knew Christ, I wasn't about the Great Commission. But when I come to know Christ, one of the things I'm immediately introduced to because the Great Commission came to me and found me is the fact that I'm called to take the gospel to others. 
I'm called to be preoccupied with how can we take this message of the gospel into the world? How can we impact neighbors and family and people on foreign soils all over the place? I wasn't worried about that. I had 24 hours to live my life each day before I came to Christ, and that was not eating up any of it. What about unique abilities that God has given each one of us? We all have gifting and abilities, uniquely talents and spiritual gifts that God's given us. They're to be used to serve the church. That wasn't in my life before. Uh, contributing into the finances of the kingdom of God. And I was, you know, just spending money. You just, right, you just you make money, you spend money, you, you have this, you want that, you, you make it, you spend it. Taking 10% of that and giving it away, <laughs> was that in somebody's life before you knew God? Probably not. All right, now here's the challenge for us. When I come into the kingdom of God, this new purpose lays a hold of me, a bunch of practical stuff just came with it, didn't it? Because it takes, it takes part of us to do all those things. But Christianity is not just attending meetings. The core of Christianity touches the realities of who we are. It touches our time. It touches our energy. It, it touches what we're passionate about. It touches our money. As a matter of fact, if Christianity doesn't, if your Christianity hasn't touched those things, then I would highly question whether you really are a Christian. Because the real God of the universe, when he comes in, he touches the real stuff in us. And those are real things for us. Well, I didn't, I didn't need to spend my energy on those other things. I didn't need to spend my money on those things. But now the kingdom of God has come. And I'm about it. I want to glorify God with my life. All right, so now I need to take my 24 hours. You know the 24 hours that I completely was Lord over before? And part of it needs to be given to these things for them practically to become experiences in my life. So this is why I'm going to need some first things and second things. I'm going to need to organize my life a little bit because there's stuff that I want. I want to experience these things. I want to walk in them. Right? I think I put this note in your outline. This is just practical implication. To live as exiles means we'll live radically different lives in the world. Right? Christians don't get 27 and a half hours a day. And, you know, when you, when you were unsaved, you only got 24. But when you got saved, I don't know if you guys have been through the Welcome Center. You can pick up your extra three and a half hours on the way out today. Uh, you don't get that, do you? You get the same 24 hours that everybody else gets. So if you're seeking to fill up your same 24 hours with the same stuff they're seeking to fill their 24 hours up, I'm just curious, where is all this other stuff going to fit? It's not, right? Right, if we're seeking to live radically different lives as exiles, one, we cannot overextend our finances and then hope at the end of the month there will be money left over to tithe. You cannot approach your money that way. We cannot fill our 24 hours with the stuff of the land and think we'll have time left over for prayer, worship, Bible, and the church. See, this is... This practice is what gets us to the end of the year looking back with a huge amount of regret every year. Because we're just not being realistic. Right? I'm just this is this most practical, realistic thing I can say to us today. All the spirituality of Christianity has to find itself in a 24-hour piece of time with the limited amount of energy that you and I have on a daily basis to live our lives. We're not infinite creatures. We're finite beings. 
God intended us to have boundaries around our lives. This idea that we can live with more, 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 it's not a biblical idea. Only God can live with more, 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 more. You and I have to have some limitations on us. Right, so how do we go from this purpose statement into practical dynamics? All right, hopefully this is helpful. First, plan to succeed this year. Plan to succeed this year. Now, here's my, here's my statement for the month of January. 30 days, let's take 30 days to living right side up in an upside down world. Doing first things first. 30 days. Right, now here's why I'm, I'm stressing 30 days. Because all of us can get in touch with this topic this morning quickly. We're all aware that, yeah, yeah, okay, Keith, I'm with you. I'm with you. But just being together means all we do just is lament together the fact that there's so much in our life that we want to experience and we want to do. But, yeah, you, you too? <laughs> you stink too? Yeah, yeah, me too. Can we have a stink fellowship? Let's just all get together and just talk about how it's not happening for you either. Oh, me neither. Well, it's supposed to happen. Not perfectly, that's why you plan to fail, but it's supposed to happen. And if it's going to happen, then it's going to take more than just you and I talking about it for an hour this morning in this church building. It's going to take us being intentional into the 24 hours of our lives. All right, so that's why I'm I'm saying let's take 30 days. Let's take 30 days. I'm going to give us a lot of room to fail and mess up and come back next week and get cheered on all over again. To go to your your small group and, and be helped and encouraged that by the time we get to the end of the 30 days, we've got some traction. We're actually moving a bit in these categories that mean something to us. All right, so I know we can do that. I'll highlight why that's so important that we can do it in the end. All right, to plan to succeed, he must at least have a plan. Right, you know the old adage, this is in all those planner books that you read. He who fails to plan... Plans to fail. If you've got no plan, it's almost guaranteed you're going to have a hard time. If you've got a plan, it's guaranteed that you're going to fall short of the plan. But if you've got no plan, then you're just going to live another life, another year of life, just sort of feeling out of control, staring at the stool, trying to figure out, what do I, what do, I do now? And you don't want to feel that way at the end of the year. So, I mean, how many guys, some people do this faithfully on a regular basis. How many guys read, you know, the sort of the Franklin planner material, the stuff that, you know, that you use as a planner and how to plan, how to schedule your time, how to budget stuff? How many of you guys read stuff like that? Let me see your hands. Wow. I thought it would be at least a few more than that. Listen, it takes intentionality. You are not, you are not a resident in Padilla, Mexico. Your life has got so much in it. If you don't take some time to be intentional about what you're going to live for, then you will frequently look back over the meaningful places in your life and just have severe regret over and over and over again. All right, so here's the key. You know, people who publish... uh, planning books and how to get organized books that are about this thick. I don't know what they're thinking. The people who will take the time to read a book that big, they don't need your book. <laughs> right? 
It's the ones who don't read because they ain't got time to read. They're the ones who need the book. So don't, don't try and do that. But I have put a resource down in your outline there. Uh, we maybe can make some copies available. It's called Biblical Productivity. It was a series of, of blogs that C.J. Mahaney did on his blog site. So you can go to Sovereign Grace Ministries to the blog site there. And, and they've put them together in a PDF format. So you can download it and just print it out. It's about 36 pages, so it's not huge. Uh, it's not yet put into a book. There is a little booklet, but it's not being published, so I, I can't get you the booklet. But you can get it for free. And, and, and CJ's got great theological insights, organizational, and then practical insights in it. I highly, highly recommend it to you. It is not intimidating. It is easy to read through, and it will give you something to start organizing your life around. Right? So everybody aware of that? Please highlight that. Go visit the website. Download it. Make use of it. It is not a difficult thing to benefit from. But today, here's my helpful principle for an overcrowded life. Do first things first. That's it. Do first things first. Now, here, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean wake up in the morning, look at your list of priorities in life, and do all those things first when you wake up, and then do the rest of your day. <clears throat> that will never work. And it really, it's not exactly supposed to even work that way. <clears throat> But here's the reality of our lives. We wake up in the morning, and there's, there's little segments of our day. Right? We live in this segment for a little while, and then we move on, and the morning turns into that segment, and the afternoon to that one, and the evening turns into that one. And in each of these segments, there's a few things. Amongst those few things, maybe one or two of them are first things. And maybe the rest of them are second things, or maybe for some of us, even wrong things. Right, second things, by the way, are not wrong things, okay? Let's remember that, otherwise we're going to get really weird with each other. Second things are not wrong things. They're just not as important as first things. So how about if we just make this the way in which we'll approach those segments of our lives? When I get into that segment, I, I want to do the first things first. And then with what I have left over, I want to do the second things. If i got time left over, i got energy left over, by all means, enjoy the second things. It's common grace from God. It's not a bad thing. But you don't want to live your whole life looking back and saying, you know what? I mean, I just did the second things consistently. I was heroic at the second things. But it seemed like I never had time to do the first things. All right, how about figuring out first, what are the first things? Put them first. And then just find time for the second things instead of doing that the other way around. All right, so here's some practical thoughts. Figure out what the most important things are for you. Right, it's going to be based on your purpose statement. And make a plan to pursue these things. Right? Quick thoughts. First things for every Christian. Every one of us shares some first things that are on all of our lists. The worship of God is a first thing for every one of us. Whether you're young, old, whether you've got a job, whether you're a student, whether you're a mom or a dad, doesn't matter. First things for every Christian are the worship of God, knowing God, loving God, enjoying God following near to God. Those, those, are, those are first things for every Christian. Right? Um, bringing glory to God. Participating, because really, you know, what the church is doing, it is participating in the glory of God filling the earth. That's, that's what we're doing. So, <clears throat> ultimately, that's why everything got created in the first place. God just created a canvas upon which the glory of God could be seen. 
canvas fell, sin began to decay it, God came in and restored and redeemed it and said, watch me now show my glory in a fallen setting. And he pulls out of the fallenness and he starts to paint on our lives and he paints on the church and the church spreads the color of the glory of God throughout the earth. So that's what we're doing. Every Christian is called to do that. Every one of us. But then there are some first things for you in your particular role and season. That may not be true for me, but they may be true for you, right? First things for moms. There's seasons and roles for moms that are here this morning. They're going to come and go. They're going to change a bit. Your kids are a certain age, and they're going to be in a different age, and their needs are going to be different in the way in which you spend your time and relate to them. What are the first things for you in that category? And what are the second things? Make sure you do the first things first. And if you've got time left over and you've got energy, and depending on how old your children are, I have to warn you, you may not have any energy left. But if you do, if somehow you're the energizer mommy and you're able to do that, and you've got energy left over for some of the other things, well, by all means, enjoy them. And listen, and don't, don't criticize others who have a different level of energy than you do, who they manage to be able to do the things that you can't do. Right? As long as they're taking care of first things first, well, then do all the second things you've got time to do and you've got the energy to do. But don't do all the second things at the expense of the first things in that role. Right? If you're a dad, husband, there's first things on your list, and that changes and flows through time. I mean, when I look back over my life, uh, I grew up, sports, hunting, and fishing were big parts of my life. You, you probably wouldn't know that now, but they were big parts of my life. I played just about every sport. I played golf regularly. Uh, I was on softball teams, played in softball leagues. I played flag football leagues. I played in basketball leagues. All year round, there were sports things going on in my life. And then I, you know, got involved in church in certain dimensions and time and, and activity there and began to have children and more and more responsibility and care for their souls and relating to them. And what, what happened to those things? They just got smaller and smaller and smaller. To where now, if I go out and try and play basketball, I'm in such sad shape, I end up in the hospital. So <clears throat> I need to organize some other things in my life. But <clears throat> were those, are those things wrong? Did I stop doing those things because they're wrong? If you're a Christian, I can't believe you waste your time playing basketball. You know this. Because some of you guys will walk up and say this. Hey, some of us are going to play golf uh, in, in three weeks. W- would you be interested? You know, I light up. I'm like, really? Oh, I would love to. But, um, let me check and see my calendar. I, I would love to do that. Why? Because I love to play golf. Is it wrong for me to love to play golf? Not at all. I shouldn't feel condemned for that. God's given us abilities to enjoy our existence. He's given us taste, right? This is one of those taste bud theology moments, right? Why do I taste food, food and it tastes so good? Because God gave me taste buds to enjoy it. Not, not just uh, bland, gave me taste buds, right? Gave me the ability to run. Running is different than standing and sitting. Give me the ability to play a sport. That's fun. Good stuff. Do it. But don't do those things at the expense of first things. Other things came into my life that became more important, more about the call of God, more about responsibility in my life. And so those things have diminished and diminished and diminished. Now, in the future, perhaps my family dynamics and responsibilities may change. And I'm, I'm planning on playing more golf. I'm planning on doing more sports stuff because I love to do it. I love to fish and hunt. Hardly never have time to do that anymore. 
So your life's going to travel through these places. What's the first things for you right now? Right? Don't just keep doing. You can't just do more and more and more. It's like, you know, listen, guys, I'm going to pick on the guys because I'm a guy. Um, but listen, I could not have sustained responsibility playing in a league every night and raising my family and investing in them. I don't, have the, I don't have the mental capacity to do that. I don't have the emotional energy to do that. What's going to happen is when I come home from a busy day in a ball league, I'm going to want to veg. I want you to leave me alone. I'm going to want to run the remote. I want to do something mindless. I don't want to try and interact with my kids' world and what they're going through and their struggles and challenges and my wife and bring some kind of spiritual content to them. I don't want to do that. I've spent my energy for the day. I'm done. Well, those things are very important, though. Investing in my wife, investing in my children during a season where I have them in my life a certain way, that's very important. That's a first thing for the role that I'm called to play. So if that's the first thing, then some second things are going to have to get moved into the second things category. And if I can pull these off at a decent level, well, then I've got time for second things. But if I can't, the second things are going to have to go. See, when you and I keep first things and second things and we load our lives up with them and then we're going to try and live in 2011, we're not going to be able to manage it, guys. More, 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 and then more, it doesn't work. It overloads us and it makes us sluggish in every category. And you know what happens when you start feeling sluggish? You indefinitely become irritated by things. You become irritated by your responsibilities. You become irritated by the people around you because they're demanding something from you and there's not enough of you to go around. Listen, is there not enough of you to go around because there's too many second things in our lives? And so as we walk through these categories, whether you're a son or a daughter, whether you're siblings in a household, there are some responsibilities. There are some first things in your life of great importance. Whether your first things need to be considered as you're a worker or a provider, you have a job, you have some responsibility there. There are some first things about being a provider and being responsible in that category. You have to put that on your list somewhere. Being a student needs to take up some place. All right, now here's what we do. We identify first things. You made a list last week. Hopefully you can go back and revisit that. If you, if you didn't, get the, get the notes and the message from last week. Um, and there was a little list you made up. Look through that list and look and see what are the first things for me. Put a one next to them. And what is the activity that's going on every day in my life that's a second thing? It's not necessarily a wrong thing, but it's a second thing. Put a two next to those. That's the first step towards identifying how am I living my life and being intentional. Right, here's some common issues. First things that are easily neglected. Prayer. Personal worship of God. Bible study. Right, those are first things for the Christian. Family devotions our first importance, easily neglected by all of us. Investing influence in our spouse, in our children, in our siblings, in coworkers, investing in people, easily neglected. Tithing, easily neglected, right? Amazingly, though, here are second things that are amazingly consistent. Our life in the I world, checking emails, doing Facebook, surfing the web, watching YouTube. Do you guys have any idea how much stupid information we have in our heads? Because now, now people are being applauded for putting their stupid information on the web. And the more stupid it is, the more we all want to see it. <laughs> it's like, 
Did you see that one about that guy who didn't? No. It's, it's, you look at it and you're thinking, why am I looking at this? I could do stupid stuff like this for free. I mean, I just, why? But, you know, we're always, you know, oh, my goodness, an email came. Oh, there's an email in your inbox. Does it ding when your email comes in? Let me just tell you the first thing to do with that ding, turn it off. Hit it with a hammer. <clears throat> Listen, you know, the odds are whatever that email is saying, it's, it doesn't urgently have to stop whatever you're doing, and you need to open that. I need to stop. I need to stop this conversation. I need to stop reading this. I need to stop prayer. A ding came from my computer. I must go see what it is. You know, it's, it's a Barney's ad. Oh, okay. You know, it's, but we make time. We make time to keep up with stuff like this. Are these really first things in our lives? Is your status on Facebook, is that really the first thing? Does anybody really need to know you just went to the bathroom? I mean, really. That's really, it's really not a first thing. Everybody who's, who's tuned into you, just imagine no one's tuned into you first. That's probably more accurate. But uh, do they really need to know this stuff? It's not a first thing. As a matter of fact, here. I'm probably going to shut down Facebook with this statement. Stop and think for a moment how much second stuff you're putting in everybody else's lives. <laughs> and, and just reconsider whether you want to download all that to everybody else. Just stop and think. Right now, someone's choosing between first things and this. Do I really want them watching that? Do I really want them to see that? Right? Hey, if you got time for that, great. But if you don't, Make it a second thing. Put it in a second things category. TV, movies, sports viewing. I mean, there, there's some religious devotion in sports viewing, guys. <laughs> I mean, there's some guys who say, hey, hey, how many times you missed church last year? Ooh, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I could count. How many uh, Saints games you miss? Oh, I missed one. What do you want to know? You know, stats complete. I am an in-house statistician. Uh, well, okay, maybe that's the second thing. Right, not a first thing. Shopping, probably a second thing. Unnecessary spending, right? Impulse buys, not having a budget, eating out too much, new gadget-itis. You know what that is? It's like when it's just, a, just a new gadget. Your old gadget works fine, but there's a new one. There's a new phone. Does your phone make calls? Yes. Does it work? Yeah. But there's a new one. I need to upgrade. I need to upgrade my laptop. Does your laptop work? Yeah. How old is it? A year. You need another one. Well, no, there's a new one, though. It's like there's something in us. But then you ask those same people, do you tithe? Well, you know, it's just hard. <laughs> well, okay, is it hard because you took second things and let them chew all your money up? And then first things can't be found, right? This is kind of organize these dimensions. Look through your worksheet, right? You see the worksheet there? This is a great little exercise. I even did this with my boys the other night. We went through and looked at 2010 priorities, practices, and habits. Just revisited the year and thought, okay, let me just write down a list here of what the priorities were, what were the practices, what did we do on a regular basis, what was found in our lives every day, what were the habits that we were into on a daily basis in our lives. And then we just all, all of us went through and we just kind of listed off some of those things. And then we asked this question, what, what are the things you'd like to make first things in 2011? As you look at your life and, and, and you're affected by the purpose statement of your life, what would you like to make first things in 2011? 
Right? Now write those things down and visit this. Take some time this week to assess your life. Listen, most of you already ra- didn't raise your hand, so you've confessed. You don't plan. You don't revisit life. You don't organize life. I'm telling you, you're living life in a blender. You, you cannot live your life this way. There's way too much available to you. And you and I have a limited opportunity and time to bring glory to God in the places where God's placed us as exiles. Let's not get into this year. Let's take January, right, get a hold of biblical productivity, sit down with a little simple thing like this and look at your life and find out what are the, what are the number two things, no, what are the number one things, and just take the number two things and push them to the side and make room for number one things. So if you get to where, oh, but I really want to watch that show tonight, it's coming on, okay, as long as it's, you know, not an anti-God sort of content. Um, okay, so you want to enjoy that. Okay, make room for first things before you make room for that then. You don't want to get to the end of the night. You've used up your energy. Your ability to read is gone. You, you're, everything's blurry and you're barely conscious and now you want to pull your Bible out. Now, you were alert for American Idol. Right? You memorized the phone number of your favorite person. You had memorizing ability going on and you dialed. But when it came to the Bible, you know, you, you pull the Bible out, and it became a second thing. That became a first thing. And now you're kind of, you know, trying to read it and get something out of it. And I'm so tired. I'll just try and do this in the morning. And you do that over and over and over again. And we just look back on life, and we're just so regretful. All right, so you want to watch that. All right, plan in advance. All right, I, I'm going to need 20, 30 minutes because I, I really want to be in the Word. I want to be influenced by God's Word. I want His insights to rub against my thinking. Plan to do that. Plan to do that before you do that other thing. It might even eat into the time. That's all right. Over the course of time, you are going to be delighted at the fruit of this in your life. Delighted. Right, so this is, this is my admonition for us. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. For us in 2011, starting in January, and here's what I want to do, and I'm going to have to ask for the covenant group leaders to help with this. Um, for us to make an agenda in January, make an agenda for some realities to come into our lives in these categories. All right, so all right, we as a pastoral team play the role of pastor in your life. Now, unfortunately, that word, that shepherd word, loses its meaning. So can, I, can we put on, maybe we're going to get some outfits for this. I don't know where Pete is. Maybe we can order some hats and whistles. Because I'd like, I'd like for us to be coaches in January. Coach is not a bad, actually, expression for a pastor. Because, you know, a coach does a bunch of things in your life. How many of y'all have meaningful coaches in your life? Right? They probably wore a variety of hats and affected you in a variety of ways, right? They were together with you. There was camaraderie. They wanted to win. They wanted to be a team together. They wanted to accomplish a goal together. And everybody came together for that. And that was great. They yelled at you, they screamed at you, they embarrassed you, they insulted you because they wanted to get everything out of you. Now, if you had one of those coaches that was just a hothead, right, and you just irritated the snot out of him. All right, well, that's not who I'm talking about here. But you know the coach who you know he cared about you and he knew what you could do and he stood in your life because he knew you were better than that and he knew what potential you had and he put drills together and he pushed you, and he yelled, and he blew his whistle, and he made you stay late after because he wanted to see something get accomplished in your life. Right, well, I, I think I want to be a coach for a few weeks. I, I want us to 
I want us to accomplish something. I want to see the glory of God in our generation. I want God's magnificent to be an amazing thing on display. In our midst, in this church, I want the next generation of our children to inherit a God that blows their minds. That's just sort of, uh, you know, maybe that God could compete with Xbox, but I don't know. Okay, those are all, those are all nice. Listen, my theology sometimes needs some practicality. Right? This needs to be practical. You want these realities in your life? I do too. They got to show up in my 24-hour day. They just got to. All right, so covenant group leaders, whatever we got to do to stand alongside people like we're all standing in lines and we're doing drills together and we're running and we're putting plays together and we're going to go back and do that again, go back and do that again. How many times do you have to run the same play over and over again, right? So listen, if we get two weeks into this and you're like, oh, no, I didn't really read my Bible, but twice the whole week, it's like, okay, let's go back, run the play again. Let's go run the play again. Because we want to do something for the glory of God. Now, listen, this is what's true about this. I know you want this. I know if you're a believer, what echoes in your soul by the Spirit of God is you want this more than you want anything in your life. I can tell you right now, I'll give you a million dollars. Or I will put you in a place where the radiating glory of God will be seen in your life. I dare say if you're a believer, you'll choose the glory of God in a moment. So I know you want this, and I know I want this. And listen, I struggle as much as anybody to organize my life. So if I don't stop and ask God to help me do this, it ain't going to happen. All right, let's stand up together. I received an email Saturday night from one of the guys in the church. It was a sense of a prophetic word that he had. And he thought it was for the men, but I'm not going to restrict it to that because I think there'd be a lot here who can benefit from this. Here's what he said. God gave me a picture of a man trying to move a huge boulder in his life. He's tried to move this boulder year after year with no success. Every year, he feels like a failure for his lack of ability to move this boulder. He feels paralyzed, condemned, and has given up on fighting it. I feel that God wants to bring confidence to this man that he is able to move this boulder because his God is mighty. In giant capitals. Every year that this man has tried in this area and seemingly failed has been a part of the sovereignty of God. God is ready to open the floodgates of deliverance for this man. He's ready to bring joy and freedom from something that has brought much pain. That's, that's a helpful, helpful word. This is where it is most helpful. Listen, when I talk about organizing and planning my life, you might as well put boulders in front of me. Because it's always a challenge for me to, to reorganize and to find traction and to change and overcome habits and patterns that have just become familiar. So that's a boulder for me. And I'm almost 47 years old, so it's not a new boulder. It's not like this just came. 
No, it's been a boulder. So every year I revisit this place. And if I was looking at my resume, I'd be thinking, Keith, thanks for the message, but I ain't going anywhere. But here's what I'm not looking at. I'm not looking at my resume. I'm looking at all those indicative statements that we talked about. I'm looking at God's mighty power. I'm looking at the fact that God chose me from the foundations of the world to be his own for a peculiar purpose, one of them being that his spirit might transform me. He did that, and he promises to do that. So when I turn away from my fumbling of my own life and schedule and I look at God, I got hope. I can do this. I can do this. And should I fail, and I will, my faithful God will pick me up. He will remind me that he alone is God and he alone is perfect. And I will be humbled by my failure. And I will do what I'm supposed to be doing on a regular basis anyway. I will turn to God and say, God, apart from you, I can't do this. But by the way, apart from God, I can't be a dad and I can't be a husband. And I can't spread the gospel apart from God. So my failure informs me of what I'm capable of apart from God. So let's plan to fail. Failure is not a bad thing. He'll send me back to God. So Lord, Lord, help us this morning. Lord, in this room are men and women you have chosen, you have called, and what a purpose is awaiting us. Lord, help us for many who perhaps don't frequently stop and examine our lives. Give us the grace to do that. Lord, give us the grace to see primary things and secondary things. Lord, give us the grace to organize a means through which we can plan and advance in this coming year. And God, I thank you most of all, Lord, most of all, most of all. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your power that blows our minds. I thank you that your spirit indwells each of us who have called on you. I thank you that you were looking forward to this day, Lord, where we would be your own elect, chosen by you according to your foreknowledge. You anticipated walking with us through these things and touching over and over again and transforming our lives. Lord, let this coming year be a mind-blowing year for so many of us. Lord, let it be a place where you find access to our minds and our emotions and our daily routines in a way that we've never seen before. God, may it be that the daily experience of all those who are here today is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. May there be fruitful times of meditation and enjoyment on who you are. We feast at your table, Lord, regularly. Lord, may those first things you've placed in our lives begin to receive an overabundant outpouring from our lives as you intended them to. So Lord, all this we give. Lord, help us in this coming, just this coming month, Lord, help us to get some traction. For we long to see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.